Good afternoon or good evening once again, dear listeners, and welcome back to the Horror Cult Films Podcast. My name's David Smith, and I have the pleasure of being joined tonight by my wonderful partner and very often editor, Emma Lee. Say hi, Emma. Hello. Tonight's big feature is a documentary clapboard jungle, an emotional and educational journey that follows five years in the life and career of independent filmmaker Justin McConnell. And joining us to talk about it is none other than Justin himself. But before we talk Clapboard Jungle, let's discuss what we've been watching. We've been watching a, a lot of the same stuff, but you've got some things that I haven't seen, of course. What have you been watching in my absence? Um, so I haven't been watching very many films at the moment at all. I've been watching Attack on Titan, which is in its final season, and I only just got into it about two months ago. So I'm very obsessed with it already. And I think I watched about five years' worth of episodes in about three days. Um, So I'm looking forward to the ending, which is coming very, very soon. So what is so darn good about Attack on Titan anyway? I think Attack on Titan is very, very dark and it begins as this story following a teenage boy. In fact, at the very beginning, it's he's younger than that um, and his friends in this extraordinary, you know, circumstance where all of humanity is behind these walls and they're in a sort of... I think it feels like a sort of kind of medieval or like early period in history. But there are these monsters who who live outside the, the walls and who humanity fears. And there's this threat that's looming over them that the the Titans, these giant, like sort of grotesque figures um, who are super strong but also seem to sort of lack consciousness are going to come and destroy the civilization and it's really violent it is really psychologically troubling at times but I think it appealed to me because you know of all horror genres I would say my favorite is probably like zombie apocalypse films. Oh you love a good zombie apocalypse film. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I love zombie films so it feels like that because except it's, it's zombies plus almost because it's not you know many like depictions of zombies and the horror are sort of these like decaying corpses look quite monstrous and you know depending on you know the faster slow zombie thing is a debate for another day but the titans are huge but they also like their facial expressions are quite horrific. Like if you look at the pictures of them, um, you know they're they're pretty pretty grim, like nightmare stuff. And I think that at the very beginning, it feels like a sort of run of the mill like fantasy anime where these characters are learning to be strong so they can fight monsters. But it actually becomes very sort of psychologically and politically nuanced as the show develops. And I can't really talk more about the specifics without spoiling it because there's quite a lot of twists and turns along the way. But I would definitely recommend it to anybody who's looking for several dozens of hours of television to get stuck into. But it is dark, brooding stuff. And uh, what else have you been watching? I've been watching 
WandaVision and WandaVision basically kicked off an entire rewatch of the MCU, which led to first time watch of some of the DCU films, which I know you've been discussing recently. Mm-hmm. Um, leading up to the, the Justice League versus the uh, the Snyder Cut. So I think we are up to Aquaman now. We've yes, still got Aquaman to watch. Now, see, now that Zack Snyder's one's happened, I'm sort of like, uh, I've sort of lost the motivation to watch it. I feel completely the same. Do you know what? It was really interesting, actually, when watching rewatching Clapboard Jungle, there was a scene where they're talking about editing and about how, you know, it's great to be concise and, like, to remember what to leave out and stuff. And I think that the Snyder Cut of the Justice League is basically, like, you know, proving almost that sometimes the opposite is true because I think it's, it's much better for having having no real restraints when it comes to time, in my humble opinion, versus the, the other one. I think with uh, WandaVision, spoiler alert, I really liked the show, but I thought the finale was strangely ordinary. I understand that parts of it were different because of COVID, right? Because they were shooting that alongside the pandemic. I'm wondering if that influenced the ending at all. Do you know, it was interesting because I also thought it was a bit pedestrian considering how ambitious I felt. Like it had been story-wise in the episode's sort of leading up to it especially the first couple of episodes which sort of you know throw you into this world where you have no real idea of what's happening and I mean the first episode is like a Dick Van Dyke show style sitcom and and I don't really think there's any indication of of what the rest of the show is going to be like for like a casual viewer in at the very beginning but watching the sort of making of uh, I think Elizabeth Olsen and some of the other people who were interviewed were talking about how that sort of flying in the air fight scene had never really been done in a Marvel film before. And, and we're talking about it as if it was kind of something new and something really interesting to bring to the MCU. But I would agree with you. I, I really don't think that it sort of lived up to the hype that I think was successfully built up to that point. I mean, fair play. One thing I will say it did do well is it still honoured its character arcs with the action. Mm. I don't think it ever lost sight of that this is essentially a show about someone grieving. Yeah. And, you know, as we get, like, at the end of the first episode, obviously the audience are like, oh, something's amiss. I, it's been a wee while since I saw it, but I recall Vision is dead. And then as the episode goes on, you know, you get little bursts of the outside world. And then as the show goes on, it gets, it really honed into the characters more. I thought that, that made it something really, like, pretty special, really. I just Definitely. sort of wish that the... Uh, yeah, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. I guess I was half expecting the multiverse to suddenly burst open and like the X-Men would come running in or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, maybe it was just stunt casting of Evan Peters. I don't know. Like, I've seen some theories online which sort of suggest that the Evan Peters cameo was setting up something else, that potentially one of them being that he is the person um, who... Randall Park's character, whose name I've completely forgotten now, says he has in witness protection. You know, the episode where they go to the, the like border of Westview, Monica, and I cannot remember what that guy's name is, the FBI agent. Woo! Ah, yes. He basically says that there's somebody in, he's got somebody in Westview, and that's how he became aware of the fact that there was this sort of anomaly. But yeah, I don't know. I suppose. 
something I hadn't remembered about when I started watching WandaVision is that Marvel has like an entire year of content planned. And I suppose like kicking off at the beginning with the opening of the the multiverse with the X-Men and all the rest of it before all of these other things had happened, I guess. I maybe should have thought, oh, yeah, it's not it's not likely to be that, like, at the very beginning of, what is this, stage four? Stage five? Stage four. So, I have been watching two movies recently. First is The Last Warning. This is an old, silent film. And therefore, I find it quite difficult to get into it. I don't watch silent films very often. This one has a strangely complicated plot, and kind of overacting where we have to sell the emotion in the absence of dialogue. Still, while I wouldn't necessarily say I particularly liked it, I really did enjoy the novelty of watching it. There's some really good shots, it's very atmospheric, and very still an intriguing mystery at its core. The other thing I saw, which I really would recommend, is I Kill Giants. I Kill Giants is on Netflix, currently buried somewhere in the fantasy section. Now, something I was thinking about recently is what if algorithms eventually learn to predict our behaviour better than we can? That's not a comforting thought, but this was a Netflix recommendation, and it was just right for me. I Kill Giants is Life is Strange meets a Troll Hunter. It's a story of a young girl who protects her hometown from some giants, or so she thinks she's doing. The audience know from the start that the giants aren't really there. We get that they're a metaphor for something. And so what we have smuggled into this children's fantasy adventure is a very good coming-of-age story. I Kill Giants is a superb drama fantasy about life, death, and childhood imagination with a really likeable protagonist some excellent presentation, and a lot of heart. Look it up. It's on Netflix right now. Get your money's worth. Now, let's move on to the news section. Here's where I wish we had a really good jingle, but we don't. (laughs) There's two big bits of news that have come up. I don't know if you've heard, Emma, but there's meant to be a Rocky TV series coming soon. And all we know is it'll be a prequel And Sylvester Stallone says that it will really get to the heart of the characters. Oh, come on. What do you think of that? No. No. I think I love Rocky, the franchise and the man, more than the average person does. Uh, More than the average viewer of Rocky films. And I just think this is a terrible, terrible idea. Because the thing is, quite similarly to... Mm, let's say, for example, the solo. Like, you're taking a character, potentially, who we first meet in, like, not quite middle age, but, like, in their early 30s, mid-30s. Not quite middle age. (laughs) (laughs) Early 30s. I was just thinking about how old Sylvester Stallone looks in, like, the first Rocky film. But, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, what I, what I mean is you're looking at, like, somebody who's an adult, who's already kind of, like, undergone some sort of arc, and they haven't hit their prime yet. Like, that's why Rocky's such a great underdog story, because you've got the sense of somebody who's, like, been beaten down by a lot in life. And, you know, when we first meet Rocky, he's, like, back 
battering people for loan sharks. The same way as when we first meet Han Solo, you know, he's just like a smuggler. Like, and and we have these characters who, in the first instalment of what becomes, you know, a very long-standing, decades-long franchise, have to learn to want to collaborate with people and to to kind of work towards a, a greater goal or something and discover whatever it is that, you know, really brings their character to fruition, I suppose. And going back and looking at that person when they're young, I just don't really see what is to be gained from that because it's telling a completely different story. I completely agree with you. I think the thing is that the character can't really undergo an arc because they have to finish at a point where they could begin an arc. Mm. And we know that because we've already seen the arc, right? With Solo... It was a particularly silly one because, like, you know, we we see him as essentially being uh, neutral, unlawful, or whatever the the, the category would be. Point being, he's meant to be politically Mm. ambivalent. However, because Solo, a Star Wars story, has to feature some sort of character journey in it, he ends up giving all his money to fund a Rebel Alliance. For Rebel Alliance... He doesn't give a fuck about in episode four. <laughs> exactly. Like these guys would have statues in his honor by this point. Like it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, yeah, you know? I don't know. Unless there's some sort of unseen. I don't know if the solo films were initially also supposed to be a trilogy, but but I don't know if there's like some unseen event, off camera event that makes him completely lose any any sort of. You know, he becomes cynical again in between films. <laughs> But in the absence of, you know, any any more filler to kind of like fill up those plot holes, it just seems a bit redundant. And and I think even though I know Sylvester Stallone is attached to write episodes for this show, or I don't know if he's a creator or whatever, but his involvement just kind of makes me feel like, I don't know, like, is it is it is there really any story left to tell for Rocky? Like, I mean... I love like Rocky's one through four, but but after after four, like I really feel like we don't really need a huge amount more until of course Rocky Balboa, which I think by that point you're coming at it from a completely different angle. It's basically damage control. <laughs> I think, but you are then looking at somebody who's in a completely different place in their life. Like you know, in Rocky Five, like I know that he's not, you know, he is sort of still a sort of has been. But but not really in the same way. He's still young enough that, that that angle can't really be properly played for like its full emotional depth, I guess. Whereas with Rocky Balboa, you're looking at somebody who is so much older and has been through more tragedy and ha- has lost a lot more and is kind of, it's able to bring something new to the franchise and new to the character. But with a prequel, you're dealing with stuff that's already happened. You know, you're dealing with, you know, by the time we meet Rocky, whatever is going to happen in this prequel will have happened. Like you said, you know, you're you're bringing somebody up to the point of this. But the point at which we meet Rocky, he isn't really somebody whose story kind of undergone a really satisfying arc. No, of course not, because the thing is, um, we lose what the series is defined by. And the, the series is defined by its optimism. The kind of, yes, anyone can do it attitude, from rags to riches, from chump to champ, right? And this is what underlies the whole thing. Here, 
the journey will have to go from someone getting further and further into the loan shark industry. <laughs> and I really hope it ends with the announcement that he's about to step in the ring to fight Spider Rico, right? <laughs> that's, that's our story, oh right? Um, and the other, the other thing, the other bit of news for long, ongoing stories is the trailer for the new Saw film. What did you think of that trailer? I really, really liked it until the one of the final shots where Chris Rock has his hand handcuffed to a drain pipe. I'm like, oh no, come on. Um, yeah, it looks really good. I, I mean, I'm the the moment I heard about this story of like Chris, I, I can't remember if it was an event, but like Chris Rock basically like walking up to Dan Lynn Bozeman and being like, hey, like I have an idea for a Saw film. That is an immediately intriguing scenario. And I don't know. I don't think I've seen Chris Rock in any sort of like dramatic role. Have you seen him in anything dramatic before? I don't think so. No. I, the thing is, like, some horror fans went, "Oh, they're getting Chris Rock in." Now they're getting desperate. You're like, "Hold on, hold on." This series needs Chris Rock a lot more than the other way around, right? Like, <laughs> That's Chris okay. Rock. Chris Rock is presumably taking a pretty major pay cut to make this, mm, right? Yeah. Like, this guy can command tens of millions of dollars for just doing some shite Adam Sandler piece, right? You know, this is a series that a lot of people think is basically dead already. And it's a series that would really benefit from a fresh voice, I reckon. I think of Chris Rock, this seems like a genuine passion project for him. The idea that he'd been just sitting about knocking up a story in his head for a Saw film, I think it's really cool, you know? And he yeah. really doesn't need the money. They didn't approach him, he approached them. There already could have just been another Saw 9 coming out anyway. So I reckon he must have had a really, a really good idea. Now, we don't really know much about what this idea is, and... Like all Saw films, I guess it comes down to the twists and things. I mean, it's got a copycat killer premise, which seems sensible since you can't really drag out the soap opera elements all that much further. But, mm. uh, you know, I mean, it's another police procedural film, just like all the others. It looks like it's trap heavy like the others. Although, oh, that uh, person t- uh, on the uh, underground uh, line, that yeah. amazing. I, it looks I've been, so cool. I've been so hyped for this since it, because it's going to, meant to come out the day before my birthday last year. Now it's the day before my birthday this year. So uh, I, I don't know, don't know if the cinema trip will be in order. I don't know if, it, if it'll be open here. If they are, it'll be an afternoon screening, very socially distanced. <laughs> um, <laughs> I absolutely can't wait for this. I think it's going to be amazing. I think there would be something really nice and poetic about after a year of not being able to go to the cinema, the first film we go and see is Saw. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, with the Saw series, it's um, it's probably my favourite franchise. You know, I, I get as much out of it as I do with Friday the 13th and stuff. But the difference between Saw and Friday the 13th is, I think, with the exception of the second, I've seen every single one of these at the cinema. You know, it's mm. uh, it's sort of thing of experiencing them coming out, you know, the height of the whole sort of torture film craze and then... You know, seeing seeing the uh, eighth one come out a few years ago, speaking to the the producer on it, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, I've spoken to Darren Lynn Bozeman as well in my time with uh, good old horror cult films, and it's it, it's just felt like a sort of 
like a constant, you know, like uh, in, in the, uh, during mm. my uh, during my adulthood. So, yeah, I really look forward to going back to the cinema and seeing another Saw. Yeah, unfortunately, I never saw any of the Saw films in the cinema. I don't even think I did. We go and see Jigsaw together. Uh, no, we did not. We watched it together on streaming. Yeah, because I I saw the first three Saw films as a teenager, like in a sort of with a with a friend when we were very very into horror films and would watch you know them all for hours and hours and hours. And I would definitely say that Saw is the one. Saw films are the ones that have kind of stuck with me the most. At now, well, since. We've been together. I've, I've probably seen most of the Friday the 13th and Halloween's and uh, mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street. And possibly because Saw is obviously like a more modern icon. Like, I think, you know, there is there aren't really any other modern horror films that kind of would be put on the same, you know, kind of pedestal in terms of like how iconic the villain is. Yeah, I think the only franchise that would come close as modern would probably be the uh, Conjuring universe. I mean, that's just taking Annabelle as the most iconic mm. character. But, I mean, she's not the only villain in that series. Fuck it, she's not even in all the films, so... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, right, now we've talked a wee bit about movies there. Now, let's talk about making movies. Here is me speaking to Justin McConnell, our feature presentation film and telling a story reminds us who we are making movies is beautiful raising the money selling them is horrible i wanted to make films since i was very young so i grew up dreaming of when i might get the big break i'm not really anybody yet what chance do i really have if you are entering this business in order to be a rich or famous you're in the wrong place to be successful as a filmmaker you have to be a little bit insane the fact that any movie ever gets made is a miracle it's all about money you can make a wonderful film and never it never gets seen i think there's a lot of stories out there that haven't had the voice in the past i have to prove myself a lot harder i think a lot of filmmakers think it's willy wonka and the chocolate factory where you just get the golden ticket and then you're making movies and that's not what it is it's an organic thing filmmaking and you you can't hold on to your original plan too tightly constant roller coaster just ups and downs and ups and downs i've been making films for almost 30 years and i still don't know how they get made by fate you're pushing this project and pushing it and pushing it and you'd give your life or your soul for the thing to happen you'd sacrifice your firstborn you cannot ever stop the doors to getting your work seen are wide open now the ability to make money off your work is what's much more difficult we have much more product than it is possible to watch sales world is AFM, Berlinale, and Canon. Like, Canon is 50% of their global businesses made there. You make the movie, you take it to the market, you have a little stand. There's just more stuff at these markets now than there's room for. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. A lost cause is the only one worth finding. If you're a shoemaker, you make the freaking shoes. If you're a filmmaker, you dream about the shoes. It's, it's a sad state of affairs, really. The film business is a hell of a mountain to climb, but I have just as much chance as anybody else. I think. So, Justin, thank you very much for coming on this show today. Thank you very much for having me. Just want to get started with your uh, surname, McConnell. Is this some Scottish that you have in you? 
I have Scottish, Irish, English, and Finnish in me. So I believe on the Scottish side, it's MacDonald, and uh, the Irish side, it's O'Connell, and somehow those family lines joined at some point in our history. I don't know my full Irish history or my full Scottish history, but uh, but that yes, there's Scottish in me. Cool. Uh, so, with the uh, Clapboard Jungle, this documentary was shot across a period of five years. How did the focus change as it went on? Like, was this always going to be about capturing your next feature film going from pre-production to a finished product? Or um, you know, did you have another narrative in mind before Life Changer took off? I didn't even have Life Changer in mind when I started shooting this. So it wasn't even a, the seed of an idea in my head at the time. Uh, I just figured that I needed a story skeleton of some kind to hang the information on to keep it interesting for more general viewers because diehard cine, cinema fans and people actually wanting to be filmmakers, I figured they'd already want to watch it because it would have information and interviews with people that they were very interested in. But I knew I needed a story skeleton, and uh, and simultaneously I knew I'd be, be trying to get a bunch of films made at the time. Uh, when I started shooting, though, I didn't know what film it would be. I was trying to get Tripped made at the time. I was trying to get The Eternal made at the time. Uh, there were there were uh, there was a pile of projects, and any one of them could have gone at any point. And then the focus probably would have shifted to that. So really, um, I just set out to shoot and then let life take me where life took me. And uh, and that's that's basically how that ended up uh, being the story that it is, is that that's just the way life went. Uh, I didn't actually try and shape a story until later on when we were actually in, in post-production because I wanted it to be honest to what actually happened as opposed to um, there are some documentaries that that generate and create and uh, embellish and, and, and come up with story ideas to kind of like make sure you have your proper three act structure mm-hmm. and all this sort of thing. Uh, I wasn't really going for that. If that happened in the movie, that was natural and part of our editing process to actually, you know, make a story that flows. Um, But we also went forward with this journalistic drive to kind of um, be as honest as possible with what actually happened and the steps that it took and, um, you know, only leave out things for for time and uh, and the and making sure that it's not repetitive and boring and things like that. Um, but it was it was very much like I knew early on that uh, if I'm turning a camera on myself and I'm also the one directing the movie that I run the risk of becoming uh, overly uh, self-aggrandizing or, um, you know, up my own ass, I guess this is a good way to put it. And uh, so I brought in Daryl Shaw early on and I brought in Kevin Burke uh, just before the edit and through the edit to uh, to make sure that it wasn't such a singular focus that I had like objective viewpoints on the outside of things throughout the whole process. So it, it became more about, you know, me as a case study, as opposed to here's a movie I made about myself and look at how awesome I am. Uh, I, I wanted it to be very reflective of just who I am for real. Yeah. Cause it's good that you've got, you said that you've got other people uh, there to, to kind of keep you in check there because mm. when you're telling the story here, how does developing the kind of image, the arc of yourself, compare to the way that you would tell a, a journey of a fictional filmmaker? Well, that's really also a question of the difference between a narrative film and a documentary. And, and in a lot of ways, like a narrative film gets written uh, three times. It gets written as the screenplay and the treatment and the original initial idea before it actually goes to camera. And that's like an orchestrated thing. You're, you're, you're trying to write and tell a story that uh, hits all the notes you wanted to hit at, at the right time. And then you go to shoot the movie. 
it's another form of rewriting because things change on set and you end up with, you know, improv, but it's still using the script as a guideline. And if changes are made on set in major ways to the script, it's usually because you've realized or the team has realized, okay, this story is actually better told uh, if we make these few easy changes as we're producing. And then it gets written a third time in post-production because as you're editing, you realize, okay, well, well, what worked on the page doesn't necessarily work on the screen as well as you thought. So, but it's still using that blueprint of the script. It's still using, you know, what, what, whatever uh, initial idea still guides the final part of the process. It's just at that point, you're letting go of, of your marriage to those original ideas with documentary, uh, especially one like this, you're not necessarily planning it from the start. You're not, it, it's very much an organic way of finding the story as time goes on and uh, taking notes as you go. And then you have also have a lot more time to, for your subconscious to kind of work on what the project is actually going to be at the end of the day. So um, it, it's not like something where you're trying, you're initially setting out to fit it into like one, one block. And for, so, because even, uh, a good example is how maybe three years into production was when I made the decision, okay, it's going to be two things. It's going to be this standalone feature film that's more esoteric and personal and emotional. And then it's going to be an eight episode series that's much more educational and talking head. Uh, and I narrated a bit, but it's not about me at all. And those that serves two completely different types of audiences. Um, so it, it was kind of like a uh, more of a discovery kind of thing. And then once you actually real, uh, realize, okay, I've got enough footage, I can start editing this and putting it together, then it's a whole other new thing with documentary because that's where the story is actually built, is putting all the puzzle pieces together while you're editing. So the most important part of writing for a documentary is the story editing and the, uh, and the post-production phase of things. Whereas with narrative, it's all three phases, but really the script and the story is key right from the very beginning. Um, at least in terms of a documentary like this, there are documentaries that are, that are scripted and planned from the very beginning. There's lots of them that are like, they've, they're, they're built like a tight machine. And, you know, this is, this is, these are the points I want to make. These are the sections I'm going to go out and get interviews and you plan it like to the nth degree. A lot of movies on film are like that because they're talking about uh, a career of somebody or uh, a, a nation's like film output or, or, you know, it's more observational based on topics and like a someone's history. So you already have that skeleton to pull from in this case, none of my life had happened yet. So it's not like I could predict the future. So it's very much discovering it as you go along. And uh, I guess in that that case, you must've had some sort of a, a small seed that grew into this. So was the original idea, I want to do a documentary about how difficult it is to, to make movies. I wanted to make a documentary that was an, uh, an accurate reflection of how challenging it is to get films made but and seen in the current environment uh, for an independent filmmaker. Because I've there really isn't that many documentaries like that. Uh, I mean, you get stuff like American Movie where it's like one person's perspective and of, of them just trying to break out and finish a movie at all, which which is like the, the, the backyard sort of um, level of that. But, and then you get the higher level of stuff. There's a documentary called Seduced and Abandoned where uh, Alec Baldwin goes around con and tries to pre-sell a project with a major director who will remain nameless at this point uh, with him attached. So he's going to bigger players and trying to like get millions of dollars and stuff like this. But there was never really a film for that mid-ground, for the independent filmmaker who's like knocking down the doors themselves or making these, you know, hundred to $500,000 movies or even, or, you know, sometimes upwards of a million and two, but in that zone where it's like, um, 
uh, the movies that flood the streaming services and and uh, and and stuff like that all the time. Uh, there's not really much of a, a guidepost for that sort of thing. So I wanted to make a movie that kind of. It, I wish existed in say the mid two thousands when I was first coming up, of course the information would have been a little bit different then, but, um, but, uh, but, you know, something that would uh, open a door for new filmmakers uh, or for people interested in the business um, to kind of point them in, in uh, potential directions that they can look into to learn more about how they can get their career going. That was my first initial sort of goal with it. Um, and I knew I wanted to collect a ton of interviews and get the opinions of everybody because, you know, my perspective is only one of many, many perspectives. Um, and, but I also knew I needed a skeleton of a story and an emotional core. Uh, and I had no money and I paid for it all out of my own pocket up until like post-production. So um, essentially what happened was uh, I went, well, I've got no money, but I do want a story, a story arc and a character to follow. I can't afford to live somebody else's life and shadow them as a documentarian for several years because I, I've got my own stuff on the go. But since I've already got my own stuff on the go and I'm doing this story anyway, the only natural practical thing to do is turn the camera on myself. And, uh, and that's, yeah, that's kind of how, how that all came together. So were you editing the story as you were going along? Um, cause you had like 300 hours of footage I saw, right? Yeah. About 300 hours, roughly. Um, so, like, what were you doing? What was the process as you were fil- as you were filming it? Like, for the course of a year, was is a clapboard jungle being shaped, or was it sort of just bubbling no, away I, the back of your mind? No, I mean, we we I, I had cut together um, sales reels and stuff like that for our Indiegogo campaign, but I wasn't actually editing anything as I went along. But what I was doing was everything I shot was very very well sorted, and and there were notes about it. So, you know, if I shot for a day, the folder name for that day would be pretty clear as to what was shot. So that it was easy to organize for later on so I could go and just look at, you know, several hundred folders of footage and, and audio and interviews. So I kind of knew I, it, it, that, that like a grid, you could now see all the puzzle pieces listed out and then you can start organizing it that way. Um, and then when post-production actually started, the first phase before Kevin Burke came on as an editor, I had Alitza Bako, who uh, is in Life Changer. She's the first form of Drew in Life Changer. She's an associate editor or uh, assistant editor on the project. She sat down and um, I, I created like 35 subject-based timelines, like, like you know, the pre-selling a film or whatever, you know, crowdfunding, whatever. And then her job was to go through 120 interviews and sort every answer to every question into one of the 35 or 40 timelines so that we had every answer also sort of organized. And then Kevin came on board and we started working on a, an assembly edit of getting the story down and then figuring out where we could, by going to these, like, subject-based timelines, where we could pull from to get uh, a relevant piece of information to what was going on in the story. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was very much like through the actual production, I was, I was just keeping good notes. I wasn't actually piecing it together necessarily, except for subconsciously or in my head or just like thinking about it. It wasn't really until post-production that it really started coming together. And uh, you mentioned earlier this sort of the importance of having an, emo- an emotional arc during, during this. Now, Something that I really like about this documentary is we're learning about your entire adult life as a filmmaker here. Mm -hmm. What I'm wondering is, by the end of it, with the sort of growth that we see in yourself as a person throughout, if Justin now met Justin at the start of your journey, what do you reckon (laughs) is the key message that you give to him? Oh, wow. That's a... I haven't had that question yet. Um... 
I mean, the cliche thing to say is it's going to get better, but like there, the, that's a problematic thing to say too, because it's like, it's not like my life was that bad back. I mean, what am I saying? It wasn't great. I mean, I was, I was probably at one of the lowest points of my life and I've recently lost my best friend who died and I was, you know, imbibing some substances and living pretty hard, uh, and making this doc kind of help pull myself out of that to some degree. Um, because I was just in a phase of depression for the year leading up to when I had made this talk after Kevin passed away. And so, yeah, obviously um, I, I would say the cliche thing of like, just keep at it. Uh, this is going to pay off down the line. Uh, Cause I had no idea back then I was just making something because I, I, I was like, what could I do with no money? And I was like this, and then that, it, I guess it just got out of control. But um, I would probably say, let go of your ego a little bit and, realize you don't know anywhere near the level you think you do, uh, but you're going to learn a lot more. And um, as long as you're open to learning and open to criticism and open to rolling with some punches, um, you'll have a better outlook on life in a lot of ways. And uh, so I guess it would be more of a reality check moment of just like, you know, get over yourself. Uh, Shit will get better if you let it get better. And uh, and you you put in the the effort because that was the big one is like I, you know, I I I, I was, you know, I was like 285 pounds at the end of 2013. Uh, And from that from that point to the end of 2015, I dropped to 169 pounds working out. Uh, and while I was doing that, I was watching every bit of like, while I worked out, I would watch every bit of like behind the scenes material I possibly could, um, y- you know, uh, tried to train my brain at the same time as my body. Um, and then I'd, I was I had already been to a few film markets before that point. But my first time going to con and all this stuff, this, which is obviously in the movie, but um, just branching out and trying to like hit the hit the problem head on uh, was was a big step that I didn't know I had in me. And And I do feel like part of I, the reason I worked so hard on that was I, uh, I, it was the documentary partially. It was like, well, um, you know, if I'm going to do this doc, I might as well put in the effort it takes to actually make something happen. So it was almost like, you know, I knew I wanted to get this done. I knew I wanted to get other stuff done. So I just kind of just buckled down and, and in a way having these projects, uh, help push me forward, I guess. So I would, I would definitely say to myself, let go of the ego a bit, forgive yourself a little bit for, you know, uh, having a, a down period of your life and, and just like buckle down and push forward and, and do what you can to get out of it. Uh, probably. I think that sounds like uh, great advice to all our, to all our listeners out there for, for, if you're wondering if they've got a film in them, but I also really enjoyed the sort of Rocky montages of you working out as your, uh, as you were as you as you as you were going through the yeah, there was more of that that got cut out, and uh, and it's weird because I think I cut out the part that contextualized why that was in the movie. So I feel like I've taken some flack over the fact that wait, wait why is there like there, I think that there's a total of maybe thirty to forty seconds of me working out in the entire ninety-eight minute movie. But I've te- definitely taken some flack about well, well, this isn't a tight edit because he put shots of himself working out in it, but there, there's a subtextual reason it's in there. You know, I'm, I'm trying to physically improve myself while I mentally improve myself while I learn. Um, and there was like a self interview chunk that was, that's in the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, uh, the arrow Blu-ray where I, that's contextualized, but I took that out because it was just like, okay, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> I figured people would pick up on it like subtly, but that hasn't been the case in some case, in some places. 
It was very much a way that I was watching it. When I was watching it last last night, as uh, as someone who throughout COVID has uh, has struggled with two things: self discipline at work and also weight. I went, I see, I see what he's doing here. And this this uh, focus on learning throughout. You obviously, I guess, you say at the beginning that you really that you really like working with actors that you admire. And mm-hmm. something I was wondering about is uh, if you've had any particular people that really stand out as uh, colleagues that you've learned a lot from d- during collaboration. Oh, you mean in general, not just actors? Like anybody? Oh, yeah, yeah, got, yeah in, ge- in general, sorry. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the reality of it is, is that uh, people don't make it in this business on their own. And I've been afforded opportunities because of uh, of many people throughout my life, uh, like, you know, going far back to, you know, high school and friends that would help me make movies in high school for no money because it was high school and they just wanted to do it. Uh, you know, through the college, teachers I had at Travis Institute when I was like taking post-production classes there. Um, but like I like I owe. Um, Straight out of Trevis, one of my first jobs was I was cutting commercials uh, for record labels through a company that basically specialized in providing like you, you take the music video cut to a 30 second commercial, put the pack shot on it, and that would be on TV selling like Seal's album or Billy Talent's album or whatever. Um, so I was hired on this company uh, and they took a chance on me because I had very little, very little uh experience at the time uh, and this this guy tony de pasquale hired me and and i got and this guy who i would consider one of my mentors carlo vassaloni uh, hired me into this editing company and that kind of put me on the path i'm on now of running my own post-production company and without doing that uh i probably wouldn't be afloat right now i you know that that company that and that drive to sort of service like to provide clients with services and at least stay in the business in that way so i'm not working day jobs um, which there's nothing wrong with that, but, uh, but it allowed me to gain, continue to gain more contacts in the business and pr- pr- like learn how to provide high level, uh, services to the film business, uh, so that I, it, that also helps my directing career. Cause I understand the post-production process and things like that. Like those guys taking a chance on me and giving me that job for two to three years. Uh, and then me jumping to like Giacomo, Giacomo Mancata's business and doing sort of similar editing stuff, all that, that those early chances bands that gave me uh, a chance by letting me direct uh, music videos for them when I never directed music videos and, you know, uh, much music for the same, like it, you, you can keep thanking people all the way through. Um, but lately, uh, like over the past few years or, or five, I don't know, a decade or so, uh, I mean, Kevin Hutchinson is a big one. I have to thank, uh, he's no longer with us, but like we spent a decade writing together and making things and stuff like that and uh we you know we 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 did five scripts together we made a feature film we made several shorts it was you know he's he's a big part of the reason uh like i owe him tons um but after that you know abby fettergreen my co-producer on life changer and executive producer on this and uh i work with this company indycan all the time where we talk every day and i'm constantly working with him uh he's made me uh, a significantly um, more knowledgeable person in this business than I was before I met him. Uh, and Serena Whitney, Whitney, my co-writer on Do You See What I See and Mark McCain, I owe a lot to because uh, she's the second writing partner I've had, but the first one who um, I, I worry, <laughs> worry is the wrong word, but I think might be a better writer than I am. So it helps make me be a better writer uh, to work with her kind of thing. Um, it, it's uh, yeah, I, I would say that um, 
like I mean I don't know that for sure but I'd like I it's the feeling I get it's like you know she's very very talented and uh, and working with somebody who's on your level or above your level makes you step up you know hmm. so I, I owe her a lot for for the years of work we put into Mark of Cain and do you see what I see and other stuff um, but like the reality of it is is I'd be listing people all day long and I and I have to apologize to anybody who I didn't mention here because like the, I, the, we, do you have 10 hours because <laughs> I, I, I think the point is, is that it really takes a village in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. People have to take chances on you. And even my parents, right? Like I, um, I've self-financed the majority of my stuff through my uh, post-production company. But early on in my career, uh, I have borrowed money from them that I've then paid back because uh, where else was I going to get it? Nobody's taking a chance on a 20-something-year-old kid. Um so, you know, to make smaller stuff uh, that, that I've then sold that returned money to them, uh, I had to. I mean, there was no other – I had no other way around it. And I, and I fully understand there are people who may not have the privilege of being able to turn to any kind of support structure, and that is difficult, um, very difficult. Uh, but I would say that it's a lot easier now than it would have been 15 years ago to make a movie that looks of high quality with the technology that's available for way cheaper now. I saw I saw the, the Twitter debate. Which, 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 which oh yeah, that got involved. But if you can make a movie on a mobile phone, I believe. Yeah, well, you can. Uh, there, no matter what that guy says, you can make a movie on a mobile phone. Uh, it's all the support structures around making a movie on a mobile phone, getting it sold, getting it seen, uh, making finishing it in a professional enough way that distributors can actually buy it. All that stuff isn't cheap. Like no matter what, but you can technically make take a mobile phone, go out and shoot something, uh, whether it's a feature film or a short film or a TikTok video or whatever. You can get noticed using your mobile phone camera. Um, you can. Uh, I mean, you don't. Obviously, things like uh, um, Tangerine and uh, Unsane stuff like that were shot with you know extension rigs and specialty lenses on the mobile phone and stuff like that to make it look better. But that doesn't mean you can't. Uh, there's a movie Arrow's got coming out called Threshold, where it was just. They, I haven't seen it yet, but the production story, from what I understand, is it was just a few people in a car with a couple of iPhones, and you know Arrow's putting it out. Oh, wow. uh, you know, it's and it's it's apparently a very good horror film. You can do this for next to no money. Uh, do I recommend that being your path? No. If you can if you can go out and uh, and try and raise raise financing, absolutely do it. My point in, say, in saying this is that it's hard to get anyone to give you money or let you make a film until you've made a film or something that proves what you can do. So, and it is within your means now to make those things. And it may not necessarily mean a feature film. It may be like, you know, a five minute video that like, look at, um, look at lights out, you know, that's a one minute short film with a great scare in it that launched uh, a, a career of a major director uh, and that, I'm telling you that movie lights out with uh, some relatively cheap uh, software or open source software, uh, the right idea, the right know-how, and uh, and and an iPhone. You can make your own movie or short film similar enough to Lights Out that it w- that could get you noticed. Like it doesn't. I think it's very gatekeepy to say you can't do that because I despite the fact that I do have a little bit of money because I run a po- this post-production company that brings in clients. Um, it wasn't like that in my twenties. I was scrounging in the couch for cushions to buy pasta so that I can make enough pasta for four or five days that I, so that I can afford to live off like five bucks for, you know, for a few days for food. I, this was part of my history. You know, it's, it's not, um, it's not like I started out being somewhat, 
I'm, and I'm not, I don't even think I am financially comfortable in, at least in terms of the scope of what generally people have in, you know, as a support system when they're, they're uh, making movies in Hollywood, especially like usually they come from family money or their, you know, their father's a famous director or that stuff does absolutely happen. Um, I'm just saying that people are going to be propping you up and you shouldn't feel bad about that. They're like, if somebody takes a chance on you because they believe in you, you shouldn't feel guilty because somebody else in life uh, didn't get the same chance uh, necessarily. And I know that sounds weird and that sounds potentially necessary. Like I don't want this to phrase that in the wrong way because I'm sensitive to the idea that there are people that absolutely do not have access. And there are definitely systemic problems that prevent people like from getting those open doors or those doors to open for them. Um, But I will say that compared to like five, 10 years ago, uh, those doors are more open than ever before. So there is a, a sort of a meet in the middle kind of thing. You can, you can like say that it's this, that everything's holding you back, which, you know, in some ways, uh, the system may be, but you also have to kind of work to meet it too. It, it's like, I, I don't want to, I just don't want to be misunderstood in this part because it's such a sensitive topic right now, especially on Twitter that I don't want like I fully sympathize with somebody who believes that they've just been stepped on their entire career. Um, but that's, you got to understand that's pro- that's thousands of people probably that feel that way. Uh, and I felt that way in my past plenty of time. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean um, you, it'll be like that forever for you. Uh, I really like the way as you've in the documentary, you handle, uh, you, you, you handle this point about, um, about, op- about opportunities and about uh, sort of structural inequalities within the industry. You know, like as you, you acknowledge the problems that you've had making this, but then you also point out that you're, uh, statistically speaking, part of a demographic that's most likely to be able to manage this as well. Yeah, so statistically those, speaking, I am, for sure. But on an individual level, it's not like, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, I don't think I necessarily fit into that statistic, you know. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, that could be my own fault. I don't I don't really necessarily know because I you have to win people over with your work and with your personality and with uh, with just who you are. They have to trust that you're going to deliver a, a movie of value uh, they, and that you're going to deliver um, on just being a, a good person personality to work around you know it's it's there's a lot of things that hold people back beyond just the system and um and uh, but but that being said the system definitely holds people back at times there was one bit that i got a lot of second-hand anxiety watching right and that's a bit where um i'd never heard of these movie markets until uh until i'd seen this if anyone listening has never heard of these either they're kind of like sort of like speed dating for uh for movies, essentially. Yeah, I would call it more like a flea market or a swap meet. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, what sort of what sort of emotions are you experiencing in one of those? Because it looked incredibly intimidating. It's intimidating when you first go until you realize that um, even though you're a tiny fish in a big pond, the pond is fucking huge. Uh, I hope I can swear. So what that means is that you know if you get a door slammed in your face or a meeting doesn't go well, there's a hundred others you can take 
or, uh, you know, 200 others that you can take. You just got to figure out a way to get to that person enough that they'll give you that five minutes or 10 minutes or half an hour or however much of their day they're willing to sit and listen to you and, or talk with you or get to know you. Uh, and realize that it's never about the one meeting. It's always about planting the seeds for the future. So it is possible you have a great meeting that goes so incredibly well, you get a project out of it at one of these markets. Uh, and I'm, by markets, I'm talking about like the Marche du Film in Cannes, uh, the, the European film market in Berlin, uh, film art in Hong Kong, um, the American film market in LA. Uh, there's a long list of them. Those are the top ones gen generally though, give or take. There's others, Frontiers through uh, Fantasia. Um, Frontiers is, is a little different than the other markets because it's not a bunch of booths. It's a curated market. So your projects need to be selected as a showcase project to be an official project to take meetings. Uh, but you can still sign up for Frontiers and, and uh, or you could in the past. I don't know what it's going to be like in the future after COVID, but you um, you can sign up for it, buy a badge and still arrange your own meetings through the through the attendees because you get everybody's contact info. Um, but anyway, uh, when, if you realize that it's not about necessarily about getting your goal in the meeting, but making sure the people you're meeting with understand you're there, you're not going away, you're reliable, and uh, for the, they think about you for future stuff, that's more important, I think. Uh, and it, it dispels some of the anxiety because you stop going into meetings going, oh, I hope this one works. I hope I get the project off the ground. And you start going into meetings like, I'm going to meet somebody cool or not, and uh, and they're going to remember me in the future or not, uh, but at least I'm putting in the work to make sure that um, you're, I'm a known quantity to the people that actually finance or buy films, because if you are in your apartment somewhere in the middle of nowhere, uh, you do have a chance of getting noticed if you make something that, that gets noticed, but they're not going to know you from Adam if you're just blindly, coldly emailing people. It's not even the right way to do things. Um, but if you're in their face, in their face is the wrong way to put it. If you're, you know, having a drink with them at a party or you're, you know, sitting down and discussing film with them at their booth, uh, surrounded by films that you know they made that you already liked and watched and you can talk about their product. Um, and I find something really helpful for me. I don't just talk about the films I want to make. I go, well, I also run a post-production company and I offer these services and, oh, I'm also a festival programmer. So if you're looking for, if you, any of your films need to play Toronto after dark, I'll just send me screeners and I'll take a look and we'll, we'll see if they fit our programming committee. You know, it, it you're able to sort of like give as well as take in these meetings. Um, I found that, that the more you can offer them or the more useful you can be to somebody, the better the meeting can go. And that may not mean your project gets made, but it may mean that maybe three years down the line or a little bit down the line or whenever, uh, you're doing business with them in some other way, or you're making a movie, a different movie with them down the line because they remember you because they know who you are. They know you're actually doing things. You've proven yourself in some way, shape or form. Um, you still have to have the, the work to back yourself up though, to some degree. Like I wouldn't go to one of these markets if I've never made a film and all I've done is written this, like just a script and I'm just trying to get a script made. Like maybe go to AFM to see what it's like, like to, to just like, you know, walk the floors and understand you get a, it's a crash course. My first AFM was 2009, right after I'd, uh, I'd finished the first script for the eternal, uh, and the short film had played a bunch of festivals in 2008. So I went to AFM my first time in 2009 and it was just like a culture shock. It was like, Oh, thousands of movies get made a year. And I see maybe a hundred of them. 
maybe a little more than that, probably more than that. But let's say I, I see X number of movies, but thousands got made a year. What happens to all these other movies? You realize, okay, a lot of them aren't good enough to sell to anywhere. So they just disappear. So somebody's investment disappears. Okay. I have to make sure that I make stuff that doesn't disappear. And then that, that sort of culture, that sort of like shock to the system is worth it for starting filmmakers, but it's very hard to get meetings if you've never done anything. So you got to do something. You got to make something that catches the eye. It doesn't matter really what it is. It's just got to be something cool and interesting. When I was ranking the uh, top movies of last year, so your one ended up being the very top of my, my list last year of the horror, for horror cult films number one. And um, the, one of the things that really... Wait, which film? Are we talking oh, we're, Lecher? We're jungle. Yeah, you topped our list last year, or my, or my personal list. There's two of us made lists. The other, the other person hadn't seen the film, so maybe it would have topped theirs too. But um, <laughs> some, one of the things that really spoke to me about it was uh, just seeing behind the curtain here. You know, so you're saying, okay, well, you know, as a reviewer, when you see when I, you know when I see stuff, I've uh, I'm sure like many other reviewers, I'm quite prone to making bitchy comments about the films I'm watching, right? But something mm-hmm. that that I really that really stuck with me from this. There's two images. There's you hand wrapping your Blu-rays. Really stuck with me as like you know this is like the the side that you don't normally see of uh, of people working on films, getting films out there. Yep. And the other was. I think it's the 2015 part when you're in Cannes and uh, you've got the people who made Sky Sharks there. Now, right. with Sky Sharks, um, so that showed at Fright Fest the same year that yours did, which uh, same year as Clockwork Jungle did, which underlined to me that this, that this project took at least five years because it was Fright Fest 2020. It took a little longer, but yeah. Yep. And, um, and I was thinking to myself, I was like, okay, so I just, uh, we obviously worked hard in this movie. I gave this film a two-star review a couple of days ago. And I felt like a total dick. Now, I looked back at my review and thought, well, I wasn't mean about it. You know, I was constructive, which is important. But it really made me sort of appreciate that they say, they, like, I'm not saying bad films don't get made. They do. But it's really stuck with me just how much work actually goes into this. Like, I didn't know about this circuit of people touring the world trying to, uh, you know, to securing these meetings. I never really thought yeah. of uh, the idea that like even a film that I didn't like was a pa- was a passion project for two people who made it you know and mm-hmm. uh, I f- and honestly I it really I found the whole thing really moving because we also have you touring the world you're going to uh, you know you're going to all your screenings at a huge one in South Korea towards the end right and you know, yeah, imagine yeah. moments like the moments like this makes it all seem worthwhile right it does, but the, you also have to reality check your, yourself afterward and go, "Holy shit, I got lucky!" And I, uh, you know, I'm in South Korea right now in this giant audience of twenty thousand people, and I've just walked a red carpet right after Lars von Trier or something like that, and I'm on the same wall with these people, and it's like, but then you got to go, "I'm still a fucking chump," you know, "I'm still really nobody." I mean, I had a, I had a great time at that festival and all those festivals I traveled to. I did like thirty-seven flights in a year, tra- traveling with Life Changer, uh, to the point where I've started to hate flying even though I love traveling. Um, I guess I got my wish with, you know, how much I've been able to not fly the last year and a bit. You've got to take a mini victory yeah. where you find it. But you still, you still, you can get a swelled head if you think about like, oh, wow, I made this movie and, and now they've flown me to South Korea and, and they're paying for my hotel and all my food. Uh, and, and like, you know, because there's all these, per- with a bigger festival, there's a bunch of perks, which is a cool little bonus but you can't make 
the art to get the perks. It's like the idea of all the kids who wanted to be in metal and rock bands because uh, of the, the fallacy that is, you know, just being in a band will get you the girls and the Coke and the limousines and stuff like that. It's not really the truth. And um, although these bonuses happen, although, you know, I, I still remember this, this is a funny story and I'm hoping Telefilm doesn't hear this, but uh, the year we played Busan, Telefilm, which is the funding body for Canada, didn't have any Telefilm funded films in the festival, but we applied to that festival through Telefilm. So every Canadian film in the festival that year were not funded by Telefilm, but they were supported by Telefilm in that they're the ones who got us into the festival. So we ended up at this really beautiful dinner in South Korea, in, in Busan, with at with like people from the embassy and all these like, we were like guests of honor for Canada kind of thing. Uh, and the same thing happened at Fright Fest in 2018. We got a photo taken for the telefilm kind of thing, but none of us ha- had telefilm funding. Like none of us had the government money, but they're like, like, look what telefilm is doing. Um, which was, I have found just super amusing that like we go to these places and we're supported by these these film organizations, but they didn't actually have anything to do with making our films. Anyway, that was a side trip. <laughs> But the point is, is that, um, yeah, you can absolutely see all that sort of like the, the, the fruits of your labor and the, the side effects of whatever, you know, success your film might have. But you got to live in those moments and go, that may never happen again. And I got to get back to work. Speaking of which, when, the, when films are finally finished, finished a bunch of them, a load of them yourself. And, and uh, we're just talking about one that's uh, about to get the, what I like to think of as the ultimate edition over here. Mm-hmm. Does your relationship with your film change over time? You know, because I'm thinking about you've got some of them on one hand, like The Eternal and The Mark of Cain, that you've been wanting to make for yeah. like literally years here. And then you've got movies that you also released years ago. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, like how is it when you see when you kind of like, can you see your own sh- own film in a shop or something, or can you watch these objectively? Mm-hmm. You know, I I think. It's always cool to see the stuff you worked on out in the world uh, and, and getting new legs and stuff. Like a good example is, I don't know when this podcast is going up, but on April 1st, Arrow, leading, Arrow on Arrow Player, the streaming app, are leading up to the release of Clapboard Jungle on, on the 19th on Arrow and all the bonus material. Starting on April 1st, they're releasing a bunch of my old stuff. So like my for, my previous documentary, one of my previous documentaries, Skull World, launches on Arrow Channel on April 1st. And then a bunch of my shorts gradually leading up to April 19th. So there will be 10 short films from me and Skull World and Clapboard Jungle and all the extras eventually by April 19th. So Skull World's a movie that didn't really catch on. I mean, it was a, another documentary produced like this, kind of just out of my pocket. I always thought, I really liked the movie. I think I think it turned out pretty good. Uh, it's a weird cult oddity documentary that, uh, you know, it was out on Blu-ray and DVD. It got pretty good reviews. It, it was out there. Um, you know, it was on Prime for a while. But now it's eight years since it's been made and it's being launched on a new platform with brand new eyes and a pretty good sizable following of people who actually subscribe to the platform. I'm curious to see how it does. I just, cause you never know. Like I, you never know. It might catch on again. The right person might see it and be like, where the hell was this for eight years? I don't know. So I do like the idea that films get rediscovered or that you can see, you know, your, your, some, somebody you, you met from, Japan or something, you know, text you a photo of, of, of like one of them, a movie made 11 years ago sitting in a DVD store in Japan. All that stuff is very, uh, it's very cool. But again, it, the same as the travel and everything else, it's like, oh, that's a nice feeling. You know, my, I've left some kind of stamp on the world in some way with whatever I've created. That's cool. But it, it really just adds up to a degree of satisfaction knowing your work is out there 
but the reality that you know it's 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 basically trivia at the end of the day like for the like-minded or for the cinephiles and for stuff like that it's just more trivia that sits in their head that hopefully they can answer a question later in their life if it ever comes up it's never going to amount to much more than that except to the people who've watched it and loved it and uh and it lives on as something more special to them uh in terms of watching my older work I have trouble with that for some of the stuff because I, all you see as a filmmaker is the mistakes you made and how you would improve things. Uh, and that includes Cloudboard Jungle. That includes like new stuff I've done. It, it's, it's, you can really enjoy the process as you're making it and you're happy with it when it's done or as happy as you can be because you have to abandon a film. You never finish a film because you know as soon as you lock picture, three weeks later you go, oh, fuck, I should have done that. You know, it's that kind of thing. Always happens for any, any artist worth their salt, I think, is always self-analyzing. You know, that was something I was wondering about. When, do, when a script, when, when does it, because the scripts are obviously finished before or abandoned before the film gets made, but like, when, when does a script feel like ready? Like, is there a point where you just say, all right, well, I, I don't want to tinker with it any further? Well, the funny thing about scripts is that they, they don't get abandoned or stopped uh, once the film starts getting made. Uh, because what ends up happening is you go into your rehearsals and you go into uh, working with the actors and you start into production. And everybody has ideas and notes. And the people paying for the movie have ideas and notes. And the dailies start coming back and people start watching them. And then you have more notes and you have more. There's always outside influences on the script when you're actually in production or leading into production or rehearsing or whatever, you know, you might have written something on the page one way, but then in rehearsal, it just doesn't sound right. So you workshop it into something else. Like the script is not done until the the picture is technically locked uh, in some ways. Um, But uh, I think personally, I feel a script is ready when I, I, it it feel like there's no one answer to this. But you you just feel it in your gut when you're like this is this is it this is this is the one and then it's still not done <laughs> like like because then other people got have to come in and weigh in on it right mm-hmm. um, I've got scripts that I've been rewriting for a decade at this point just because like a couple of years will go by and you go I'm gonna give that another read because I still want to make this movie I wonder what I'll what I'll see in it now and you've had two more years of life experience and you go okay no I I, I can see how this can be improved uh, so in a way time almost helps the work i think because especially if you've got people reading it gradually over the years or over time or however long it takes to get to the screen you've got more feedback and you've got you know script readers or whatever it, things p- people can see in it that you didn't necessarily see uh yeah i think uh, in a way it's like cooking uh writing a script in that you you put the ingredients together and it's in the execution of how you create something that makes it taste good or not but Certain things like slow cooking, uh, you know, making chili or something like that. The more time you put into it, um, uh, this 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 metaphor is losing. It's going right <laughs> off the rails. Uh, the point is, is that I I, I do think that um, uh, a script is always being refined right up until the last until you you basically call a wrap on the shoot, and then even in this even in post it can be refined even further. Um, but as a writer, it. The moment you feel like this is the movie I want to see in my head, that's when the script is done. But know that it's not really done then. It's just when you feel satisfied enough to start showing it to people. So when you're writing them, or when you're redrafting, I guess, are you thinking of what the realistic budget's going to be while you're doing it? Or do you kind of just let, let your imagination go to where it goes and think, if, we, if, I, need to, if I need to find a cost-effective a cost way of doing that, I'll rewrite it later? Depends on the project. Um, 
something bigger like Mark of Cain or the Eternal. I wasn't, I, I was thinking about the budget, but not in a way where I'm like, oh, I'm only going to have like 150 grand. I need to pull this off in, in like, I need to scrape by to get this one. Those are bigger movies. So it's more just like, okay, I, I sort of write to a budget and I sort of don't. I've got this movie Tracer where I just let my brain go wild and it's pro- like, it could cost 5 million. It could cost 50 million. It doesn't, like, I don't know. And that's the kind of project where I, where I just write. And then the realities of the production will, will cause a rewrite to happen <laughs> one way or another. But uh, other things that I've written specifically to a budget, uh, the collapsed is a really good example of a movie that I made my first second narrative feature, but the first one to get real distribution. Uh, that was a movie I made where I knew I had $40,000 to uh, shoot the movie, not finish it, but shoot it and get it to a rough cut stage. I knew that was the exact amount of money I had. So I wrote the entire script around the exactly what I knew I could pull off, what everything would cost, down to the point where it's like, well, I've got access to a family hunting camp and I know I can rent a gas station for a day in a small town for X amount of dollars. And I know how much it costs to rent the subway platform below Bay Street Station that they shot Max Payne in. So let's write those into the script. You know, it, it was it was it was reverse engineered completely. And it probably shows. I mean, that is not a it's not a particularly strong script. I, we wrote it way too fast in six weeks and we were shooting a month after that. And uh, it was a lesson learned where it's like you need to take more time with the script. You need to take more time with rehearsal and casting and all these different things. Um, but that's part of it, too. It's all a learning process. Uh, Life Changer, I wrote to be initially to be something that I could shoot in five short films over a series of like weekends so that I could mount a production of a short film. Then I'd have the chunk of the movie and then I mount another production of a short film. Then I'd have another chunk of the movie. And then gradually that ended up being a single film and a single film shoot. Uh, so I was able to write it to be a bit more flexible and a bit bigger, but it was still written knowing that I probably wasn't going to have more than a million bucks to make it. And then I had way less than that even, but I, uh, yeah, so it really depends on the project. I, it depends on my reason for writing because sometimes I write just to write. And sometimes I write going, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get this made. So, uh, or I'm going to get it made in a certain way. So I, I reverse engineer it so that I know it's going to co- I know what it's going to cost. So I can come into the pitch meeting and go, this is the budget I need. I know it's going to cost this and I can show my work. So with the eternal and uh, well, actually Mark of Cain, I believe was going to go into production, but before COVID, right? Uh, it was supposed to shoot May last year, but we, we had to put it on the shelf and now we're trying at this point to, to get it going again for this year uh, in Australia. Um, because Australia is virtually COVID-free. Um, so we already had an Australian project, so why not? Uh, it, we do have our money at the table still. We do have the, the part, same partners that were there from last year at the table, and we're in the middle of casting at the moment. But yeah, that was kind of shitty, because we were just we were out to a pretty big actor. We, we had just... So we were, we were taking big swings. We went out to Wesley Snipes. We went out to Jim Carrey. They passed. Uh, we were out to a third actor who we're still talking to right now. So I'm not mentioning who it is. I just, I'll talk about who passed on it. Um, we're, you know, we have everybody at the table and last year we did too. And we were like, okay, we're, we're going to, we're finally going to be making this. And then COVID hit and, and the world fell apart and it was like, oh crap. <laughs> well, I hope I hope the publishers of the book let us renew the option next year under the excuse that it's not even an excuse under the reality that we just couldn't shoot it. You know, the world was under a pandemic kind of thing. Uh, even though movies did get made, this particular movie would not work as a pandemic production. I don't think it looks like a really 
really good idea. I tried, I tried buying the book last night when I was watching the movie. I was watching uh, Clockwork Jungle. I was going, oh, this, he, he makes this sound amazing. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's not not available in the UK any longer. Oh, um, it isn't. Uh, you should be able second hand shop. Have it. Yeah, I think you can get it second hand through Amazon. I'm pretty sure there's copies out there. Uh, and it was republished in 2014 or 2015 uh, under so. Yeah, it's I look for Michael Prescott Kane as opposed to uh, as opposed to Douglas Borden Kane. It's the same book, but he's he's got his real name is Douglas Borden. Then he became Brian Harper, and then he became Michael Prescott. It's all the same guy. That so, may well be where my error came in. Then. Yeah, so if you're looking for Michael Prescott Kane, that's the same book. Uh, with with the Eternal, is that kind of like your sort of Moby Dick at the moment? Like, is it is it yeah. like the Great White that will be that will hopefully be caught someday? I've learned to um, well. I hope so because I, I really love that script. I think it. I think it's super fun and uh, it's influenced by so many things that I grew up loving, uh, while being its own thing. Uh, at the time I was at the time I was writing it, I was heavily into like watching Sons of Anarchy and and uh, and Boardwalk Empire, and it, it's it, and it's very much a mob movie. Like it's not Innocent Blood. Like it, it, automatically you jump to. Um, you know, vampires and the mob and you think of innocent blood, but that's not what this film is. This film is like warring gang factions who go to war because a vampire jumps in the middle of them and plays them off each other, Yojimbo style. So it's, uh, it's a really fun, I think it's a really fun script. I'd love to make it, but I've stopped attaching myself emotionally to my work in a way that anything is a passion project or a Moby Dick. I just want to get the next one made, whatever. And whatever the next one is, is generally the one that people are most interested in in the meeting. And that's why I've got multiple projects at once because everybody has different tastes. Um, It's not like I'm trying to cater to a wide menu. It's still projects that I want to make, but at least if somebody says, Hey, do you have a contained supernatural thriller uh, of some kind that we've got X amount of money? I can go, Maybe <laughs> or something like uh, something like that. But uh, the point being is, I'd love to get the Eternal made. I think that I think that'd be a real. I had especially because of the cast I had atta- attached to it. I, I think it would be just a really fun uh, balls to the wall, ultra violent thriller, horror, action, comedy. I don't know. It's a, it's a very strange script. It's kind of always thrillers and horrors that you're leaning towards. You said so. So you did one that's only one shot long. Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, Broken Mile. That's a drama. Uh, although it's, it, I built it like a thriller because I figured people would get bored as fuck if it, it didn't have momentum to some degree. Uh, yeah, that one's called Broken Mile. Um, I, I'll put it this way. I'm a monster kid at heart. I love horror and thriller and action and genre stuff, sci-fi and all that. So, so the majority of the stuff I've written is, is in that genre. But that doesn't mean it's the only stories in me. Uh, it just means that I'll be coming back to those stories fairly regularly. Uh, I also think that genre film gives you the latitude to tell really interesting stories without being tethered to a, a reality in, in necessarily, or, or um, you know, you can establish the rules of a universe that don't match the rules of our universe. And that allows you the ability to explore bigger ideas beyond what like, you know, cosmic horror allows you to explore existentialism in a way that you may not necessarily get out of a slow moving drama. And also the way I guess you can get get your series themes in. So remember I was um, frustrated of a bit where we're talking about the rules of life changing and they're going, oh, but I don't know if people would understand the rules. And you're like, people will be interested if that's why they'll understand the rules. But I saw that you uh, you mentioned that, well, it wasn't necessarily the original intention. There's a kind of a bit of a me too aspect to life changer. Well, originally, like the first draft I wrote didn't have that. Uh, but I wrote that draft in... 2015, I think. Uh, so the initial drafts didn't really have that angle, but 
it became such a hot button topic and I started doing a bunch of reading and I started doing self-reflection of, uh, of my own past and in my own relationships and how I approached dating and women. And, um, the, I guess the, the problematic aspects of that. And then like the, the things, the toxicity that gets ingrained in you growing up as a, as a kid through the eighties and nineties and like how much of your romantic, uh, knowledge comes from like, the normality of, you know, the stalker tropes and specific, like, you know, the, just the, the concept of, you know, if you're, you got to pursue that girl and don't, you know, don't take no for an answer. You know, if you're meant to be together, you, you know, like that sort of toxic mm-hmm. shit. Um, I was reading about that and, and, tr- and just thinking about it and think, and it just, it, it sort of infected into my mind uh, as I was rewriting to the point where I went, Oh no, there's, I could say something here to some degree, but I, I did not want it to be a message film that way. Mm-hmm. It was very much just, I wanted that subtext there because it helped shape the character of Drew and who he was and how, or, you know, Drew technically is, is a sexless character. He's been living as both men and women throughout a 70 year period. So although he was born as a boy, he's, ne- he's both like he's, he's neither. He's, he's uh, you know, he, he has both worldviews. So I, I wanted to help flesh his character out a little deeper and a little better by showing how toxic his actual worldview is because of, of his, his upbringing and because of his outlook on life. Um, it was more of a, it was also a comment on how someone can get radicalized just by being, by not being, by not being given enough of the information necessary to navigate who they are and how they fit into the world and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, it, it was a lot of things. And I think a part of it was just, I was spending so much time on the internet and in other ways, just learning and reading and trying to better myself. And as I was doing that, it influenced the writing of the script uh, or the rewriting of the script rather. It was simple things like, um, I like one of the earliest drafts of life changer, the dental hygienist character uh, he takes over was, uh, was an escort in an early, early draft. And then it was, it sort of hit me like, no, that's, let's actually give her agency. Let's not make it just like, and not, not that um, sex work isn't work or any of that stuff, but it just, it's, it was so tropey that I, I, I wanted to break out of that and make something different. Um, but I'm also a big believer in uh, not, even though the movie has an inner narration, I, I, I didn't want to just like throw all those messages in people's faces and be like, this is what the movie's about. Uh, I wanted it to be very much something that people either pick up on or they don't. And uh, yeah, that's where that came from. It's something that always, um, slightly frustrates me about parts of the horror community I remember when the remake of Black Christmas was coming out people were saying oh but you know it's uh, it's too political this film they're going hold on hold on The Invisible Man has very similar themes to Black Christmas One, uh, it happens to, I think to be a better film than Black Christmas remake but the point being it wasn't the presence of the message itself it was that the message is better integrated with the story it's about execution right it's um I have a friend who's a writer who's who's hilarious. I find him really funny, and uh, when he, and I'm not talking about specifically any movie here. I'm, I'm not going to even comment on the perceived quality of either of those films. I, 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 I they did what they did, and uh, they were successful as they were successful, and um, at, at delivering those kind of messages. I'm, I'm not going to get into that. But he 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 likes to use the phrase, "Oh, they're trapped in a metaphor." So the idea that uh, it's not about the story with some films when they want to get a message across, the actual metaphor they're trying to get across is the thing that's driving the story as opposed to the characters. Uh, and, and I do feel that's a trap people can fall into sometimes. As a filmmaker, when you watch films, 
are you able to fully switch off when you're watching movies or as part of you thinking, oh, I'd have done that? No, I mean, I'm not, I don't think anybody who works in the business that they're like, uh, I had a, a anyway, the, yeah, um, sometimes I can fully switch off. Sometimes I can watch a film and just enjoy it as a full experience. Uh, most of the time that's theatrically when I'm actually absorbed in like a, like a really good film. That, that's the other thing. If the film's great, I'm not necessarily tearing it apart on the first watch or, or trying to break down how they did something. I, my mind will go there for sure, but I'm usually trying to absorb, uh, absorb the actual um, experience itself. Cause I'm a film fan first, I think in a lot of ways, like I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a cinephile first in a lot of ways, but you can't resist, uh, you know, breaking things down or analyzing things. And I don't, I don't think that diminishes my enjoyment of a film, but my girlfriend criticizes me for this sometimes too. It does mean that if I don't like the film, uh, I'm pretty quick to jump to why, if that makes sense. So like I, I generally, I can usually contextualize why something's not working for me pretty clearly. And uh, I think she gets mad at me sometimes because it diminishes her enjoyment of something. <laughs> and, uh, and I, uh, and I, I apologize now, Ashley, for that. Uh, I don't mean to necessarily. Um, all the time. But yes, that's definitely been an issue for me in the past. Uh, but most of the time I like, if, especially if I'm watching something to turn my brain off after a whole bunch of work and I just want to, just want to escape into a movie, I'm not going to overanalyze that too much. Mm -hmm. And I watch a lot of what people would consider to be trash as well, just to like, you know, I'm an avid video videos, vinegar syndrome collector. And I watch, you know, stuff on prime and Tubi and stuff like that. Cause I, I like obscure random bullshit. And uh, if I, and like laser blast, I have to give big, respect to for like uh who run by peter koplowski and justin uh, dayclu in toronto for unearthing a lot of this stuff and putting them in the context and the audience that would actually appreciate it that kind of stuff i uh, you know it, it is pointless to tear apart a movie like that because there's so there's such singular experiences that are enjoyable for some unquantifiable reason and to try and understand how you'd make something better would ruin that experience <laughs> What was the last really good film or movie that you watched? Fuck. Um, I mean, I've watched I've watched tons of stuff over the last little while. The Devils. Uh, I watched the Devil Ken Russell's The Devils for the first time a few weeks ago, and uh, and I thought it was just transcendently awesome. Um, I I watched the Arrow uh, Blu-ray, the cons cut uh, or the con cons, the con cut of uh, of uh, Southland Tales last night. And that was a movie I did not identify with and I did not warm to when it first came out because I was younger and I think I was expecting another Donnie Darko and it wasn't Donnie Darko. Um, but I watched that last night. And while I don't think it's like this incredible film, I will say it was absolutely enthralling and fascinating to watch. Like it, it, it really like oftentimes when I'm watching a movie, especially at home, it's hard for me to put my phone down all the time. Like it's, it's hard for me to just like you go over their phone and just like zero in on this because I, I'm always got clients emailing me or people messaging me or calling or texting. It's hard to focus. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a movie where I was like, I haven't talked to anybody in like an hour and 10 minutes. I'm literally just zeroed in on this. And I'm, again, I'm not saying it's even a particularly good movie, but it's really original and really like really singular. And I mean, I could be listing stuff forever because I watch so many films. Um, but stuff that really, really stood out to me as, as great. 
Yeah. I don't, <laughs> Dawn of the Dead, the original uh, Romero Dawn of the Dead. I rewatched all of Romero's Dead films over the past couple of months. But Dawn of the Dead is one that I've seen so many times. But it was like watching it with new eyes through that uh, that 4K set and realizing just how fucking good that movie is. Like, um, but uh, I, yeah, again, I this is one of those questions I can answer forever. And I, I, I always get uncomfortable with those questions. It must've been great meeting, meeting Romero for the film. Yeah. He, he's an incredibly nice guy. And, uh, you know, I interviewed him once and then I, I shot, uh, shot that interview between him and del Toro that's on his box set and then interviewed del Toro at his place right afterwards. And then later that day we, he ordered us, uh, uh, sushi and we drank Chivas Regal and just talked about the Oscar picks for the year and, and film and not nothing about his stuff. And I thought that was just, he was very down to earth, very, very nice fella. Um, and I'm very sad he's gone. I could just uh, ask you one very last question. You mentioned um, at the beginning, you were saying, you were saying that your post-production company, your initial break, it was doing post-production adverts, right? Yeah. Do you remember the very first advert that, uh, you, that you did post-production? I wondered what it was for. It was a simple plan album. Uh, I'm trying to, I vaguely have the sound, the sound of the song in my head. It's the song that goes, I'm trying to forget you, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it was, a, it was an ad for that, whatever that album was. I can't remember right now. Uh, so like early 2000s pop punk shit. Uh, I don't remember. I think that was the first ad I did. I think so. It may, that might've been at least in the first five. It was either that or a Missy Elliott commercial. But when that came on t- on telly at the time, was that like the uh, you know was it a similar feeling to to being at movie premieres later oh, yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. Well, anytime you you make a you make a inroad into getting where you want to be, it's the same feeling. Whether it's going to South Korea or the first time you see a music video you directed on TV, it's the same idea, right? I I still think one of the funniest moments in my early two thousands that I rem- I still reflect on is. For so, I was working at this company making these commercials, and I guess I got typecasted. You know, I'm a little heavier or whatever, and I, I look like a slob or whatever. I don't know when I in the early 2000s, and uh, they were trying to figure out who was going to be in the commercial for uh, Canada has this series for much music called Big Shiny Tunes, and they make commer- they're, they're like compilation albums of like the hits from the year. Uh, so they were doing the commercial for Big Shiny Tunes 8 through this company I was working for. And I guess they were like, that guy looks like he'd be eating a burger. So I was I was like one of the two leads of two versions of this Big Shiny Tunes 8 spots, like eating a giant burger in the middle of a food fight. And I remember being downtown in front of the Much Music building where they have this wall of videos at Speaker's Corner, which is a place where people would just walk in and do video testimonials and they would end up on TV. So there's this giant wall of TVs and I'm standing there in front of it waiting for a streetcar or something like that or just I was just there and that commercial came on behind me and some lady stopped looked at me pointed at me pointed at the TV pointed at me and went like with a big <laughs> open mouth and I, and I looked behind me and there's my fucking face and I went oh god damn it I'm never going to live this down but luckily people's memories are very short and those commercials last for no time at all so whatever <laughs> But uh, it was me and then the, the girl who was the other lead had to st- ju- shove like a giant handful of fries in her mouth. So regardless, though, that was, yeah, every time something like that happens, it's like a moment of like, oh, I'm in the zeitgeist or whatever. But people's memories aren't really that long. So it, it's more just you get a memory, you get a story to tell, and uh, and you know that you've done all this work. Like I've 
I've authored hundreds of Blu-rays and DVDs at this point that are all over the market. You know, the the Hunky Boy edition of Psycho Goreman. I authored that and created some fun special features and made you know made all the menus and all that. Like I, that's part of what I do for a living. So I see my work in terms of authoring out in the world all the bloody time because I make so many co- so many retail editions to things. So you get a nice little oh yeah I did that. But uh, or same thing with like trailers. I cut tons of trailers, so it's like oh yeah that's my trailer. But it's after a while it's just like cool great well what what do i have to do what's my what's on my schedule to do today and you just move on with your day thank you very much for coming on here and speaking to horror cult films that it's clapboard jungle folks going to be available from april the 12th on this on the what looks like a, an absolutely excellent arrow edition where it's i believe five hours of additional content no it's way more than that there's a uh, <laughs> i added it up and if you watch everything on the arrow blu-ray including all the commentary tracks uh it's 24 hours of material Shit, 24 hours of material and uh, available to pre-order. Pre- well, it should be to pre-order. I don't know when this is going out, but it should still uh, be to April pre-order. Yeah. Or, oh, sorry, I'm an idiot. You mean this? Yes, there should still be time left to pre-order. If not, go yeah. out and purchase it. Oh, and the, you mentioned the Clapboard Jungle series. When do people get to watch that? Uh, the goal is to deliver it to our partners in the summer, so at some point later this year. I'm not 100% sure the exact release date because we're still in post-production, but uh, by the end of the year, it'll be out. Excellent. Well, we shall uh, keep people updated on, on the UK release. Uh, Justin, thank you so much again, and I really, I really look forward to having uh, Clapboard Jungle in my collection. Thank you for having me on the, uh, on the podcast. say never meet your heroes i don't know if i call justin my hero as such but i really really admire him what a, what a fucking guy you know i think i think that film is brilliant it's my favorite film from last year it was the one that made the biggest impression on me you know it was such a, a satisfying journey that we see if that is he's very lucky that the journey he had was a satisfying one one uh to do that with but you know we see the whole process we've got writing we've got directing we've got effects we've got acting funding distributing and even a little bit about reviewing you know every stage of the film process what did you think of this one emma i mean i loved clapboard jungle i think it was one of those films where you were sort of holed up watching all of the fight fest films in the living room and it was one where i had sort of seen I think I just happened to be in the room when you started watching it and I sat down and watched it with you. I just thought it was brilliant. I think that it it really well establishes the tone, like right from the very beginning is this sort of like dry sense of humour, but it is very warm. Um, So I think he starts off by saying, they say not to make a film about yourself filmmaking or to open it with a quote. And then he does all of those things. (laughs) And just as it goes on, I think the editing is really witty. Like, you know, my my favourite bit, I think, is when he's on the phone to somebody who's giving him, like, advice about 
um, I don't know if it's a pitch or or if it's about just hit a, a script in general. Um, and they're telling him that they don't really think that the concept is clear. It doesn't really work. And then it like splices to an interview with his parents about how they say he doesn't take uh, criticism very well. Mm. <laughs> and then goes back to this phone call. Like, I just think he comes across as a really, really likable guy. And because, again, like the great Rocky, this is sort of an underdog story. So even has a training montages. <laughs> Indeed. Like, we have to like him for it to work as a film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, Justin, he's a very good avatar for the audience. Because, you know, you imagine um, a lot of people in the audience will want to be filmmakers. You know, and it's admirable that this guy has been filming himself at a point where, you know, he didn't have a big project greenlit at this point yet, you know. Mm-hmm. He'd started making his film about trying to make films when he himself was yet to get one properly funded, you know, from for investors, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's a great sort of synchronicity thing, really, you know, that he's doing that whilst also, you know, he's maturing as a filmmaker in front of our eyes. And he's also becoming more successful as a filmmaker, too. You know, I mean, across a five year period, he could have quit the business by that point. You know, we don't know, like if Life Changer hadn't worked out, but it's so good that Life Changer did work out. It's a decent film, and it's great that we get to see him touring this as a kind of emotional climax, because, you know, mm. a film would have to end at some point. He'd have to stop making this documentary at some point. It's brilliant that he got to do it with these circumstances. Yeah. I think something that really struck me about the film, especially re-watching it, was that although it's a film about filmmaking, the problems that it identifies in what barriers there are to pursuing creative dreams and trying to make projects happen are sort of common to other areas. You know, it's not just about filmmaking. This problem of oversaturation, which is mentioned quite a lot in the film, about there being so much content and more people wanting to make stuff than ever before, and this being kind of a problem when it comes to trying to get your name out there. Like, even though it's very potentially very easy to make films or, or you know, you could say to write books or whatever, the, the problem is how you then market them and how you then get them to to the consumers. Oh, absolutely. Like they, they say uh, during the documentary, there will be so many great films that are just simply unwatched, mm. you know, about one of the uh, good things about writing for horror cult films is getting screeners of movies that I never would see otherwise. Like something like felt, for instance, yeah. felt is a movie. I, I loved it. Five star film. I would never have looked that one out by choice. And I don't even know that I would have had the option. I don't think it's even available in the UK yet. And that was a film I reviewed years ago. So, you know, he's right about the aspect of luck that comes into it too. And I like that's something that does, that does come up in it. You know, this guy doesn't buy his own hype. It's a really sort of warts and all portrayal we get here. You know, it's a very intimate one. I mean, you know, we see him working out. Uh, you know, we see him losing out on deals and stuff. Fuck. In one weird bit, we even see him in the shower. I don't know what the filming was about for that. It could be this year's version of the bath scene in Tiger King, but um, I should have asked him about that. Damn it. I don't think so. I think, I mean, for, for me, like, that didn't stick out to me. It's, like, very, very strange, because you're seeing them, him do, like, all sorts of mundane tasks. Like, I think it's interesting, like, across the years, 
um, you still see the same sort of shot of him hunched over his computer screen, like doing editing, you know, and it's and and I think we just get a sense of like what the daily life is like. The fact that he, you know, he's got the same sofa in that room, and the sofa appears in some of I think it appears in his short film as well because he's just using you know the environment that's around him. Mm. I think it, it's a really interesting for me. It was really interesting to see how much of his life kind of seemed like really quite claustrophobic in that room, but then also you see him traveling, you know, touring, trying to get out there to get the film out there. So the, I guess him filming himself in the shower to me was just like, oh, right, okay, so we're seeing him vulnerable and like unfiltered or whatever. Mm. I mean, I'm sure that was the artistic reason for it. He does, <laughs> come, he, he does uh, let himself be very vulnerable, isn't it? You know, like I think something that really works about it is he is able to do an underdog story about himself that seems very genuine. Mm. And he also seems to absolutely love what he does. Like, this is both a cautionary tale and a total celebration of cinema. Yeah. A celebration of how great it is to work in this industry, but at the same time, how fucking horrible it can be. But I think also something I appreciated about the film was that he did highlight his own position as um you know a white man in an industry that's dominated by white men um but had sought out you know female producers and directors and asked for their perspective on things and had you know was highlighting the fact that this is a really male dominated industry and while he's finding it difficult to make films there are people who are even more marginalized and who you know have other barriers that they have to cross as well as, you know, just the general difficulties that come with trying to get a small film made if you don't have a lot of money behind you. I suppose it's that sort of, it's a thing that he's he's saying, look, uh, you know, I can't speak for everyone's experience here. Some people have it a lot harder than me. Some people probably have it easier than me. But the end of it, he seems to suggest it's worth it. It's just something about having, about having your movies out there, you know, having yourself sort of immortalised on the, uh, on screen like that. I guess I find the whole section of him touring the world really rewarding to watch. Because this is coming out before the Blu-ray, I guess I don't really want to talk too much about the lesson at the end of the whole thing. Mm. But, I mean, people watching it on Blu-ray will be aware, hopefully, that Life Changer got made. If or not, it'd be strange to watch a documentary that includes the making of it. Uh, but... You know, I think uh, I think there's something very life affirming about the whole about the whole movie, and yet this is not Steven Spielberg here. You know, this isn't like uh, a huge director going off and doing this. You know, it's a, it's a relatively small filmmaker who's taking us along on his journey, and he meets some really good guests as well. You know, you've got like Tom Savini, George Romero, Barbara Crampton, Guillermo del Toro, and Lloyd Kaufman. I remember watching the uh, horror crowd, which screened at the same fright fest as it, and like, no offense to the uh, horror crowd team, very good documentary in its own right. But the guest list was just so different here. You know, it's a different league of people he's he's got access to, and you know, when you see people like Sid Haig now, who's no longer with us. It's uh, it's a very very impressive cast that he got for it. Mm-hmm. I think that, well, I would wonder if he would derive the same kind of sense of satisfaction and like 
he speaks at one point in like earlier in the documentary about feeling like he's not really feeling fulfilled artistically. You know, I would wonder if finishing this film, this documentary, if he looks back on it and would feel the same sort of sense of accomplishment and achievement as he maybe would with, you know, some of his other feature films. He's got a good background as a documentary filmmaker. Uh, and uh, like, well, for re- te- recounting the interview that hopefully everyone's just heard, you know, he talks about crafting a narrative out of 300 hours of footage and then mm-hmm. going, well, you know, what, what am I going to prioritize? What are my, uh, what are my big themes for this? You know? And, uh, yeah, I, I think the other thing that really made me do was think about myself as a, as a reviewer. I think, okay, I've always got to be, and I try to do this anyway, but it made me want to be constructive rather than cruel. Mm-hmm. You do get bad films. We talked about some bad films in the last episode, for instance, like, a, uh, like Man of Steel. But at the same time, we should never forget the literally thousands of names in the credits for some of these films, you know, whether it's the caterer there, whether it's the director, whether it's one of the stars. It's a huge investment for them, you know, and uh, it's a miracle, as you say in that, it's a miracle that any films get made at all. Like for one thing this did not make me want to do was go out there and make a film. I thought, I don't have the drive for this. And I also would not have the patience to do this either. Yeah. It's interesting, I suppose, for bigger projects, though, that, you know, you are getting the you are getting the A-list actors or whatever. But sometimes positions, you know, pieces are moved into position before really even a story's there. Whereas, I guess, with, you know, something that was highlighted in Clapboard Jungle is that, what you know, the less you have to work with, the tighter your core elements need to be. Like, the storytelling really needs to be there because you're not necessarily going to get the best actors in the world. You're not necessarily going to have the biggest budget or special effects or whatever. But but the cheapest thing, really, is is the story. You know, the, the, the easiest thing in terms of, like, resources you need it's like creating that narrative that like is is doing something fresh or original or or satisfying for for the audience whereas like some of these big budget films you know pe- people are going to go and watch like the next no matter what no matter how terrible it is people will continue to go and watch the next star wars film or the next like marvel film or the next mm. uh, well maybe not but, <laughs> but in theory the next dcu film um <laughs> so so i guess I I don't know. It's just my personal opinion. I think that um, sometimes the story there comes secondary because there's already a market. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think with a lot of these bigger movies, the studio system, you've got these films that are going to be there as product. You know, they're, they're there to be watched. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember when I was doing an interview with the director of, uh, of Rings and... Uh, he was. He spent a lot of the interview talking about his previous movie, which is not necessarily a great sign when he's not hyping up the one that he's currently working on. But he explained it. He explained his uh, his attachment to the new Rings film. He said, "Look, the script was already written when I when I got involved with this project. You know, we already had sections figured out. I just came in and shot it. Right? Yeah. You know, this wasn't a guy that loved what he did. The thing is, from his perspective." Rings was always going to come out 
So why not be a part of the film? You know, I mean, fuck it. Francis Ford Coppola said something very similar about the movie Jack. You know, the Robin Williams one, where uh, where he's a young boy who who's taught by Jennifer Lopez and he fancies her and other things like that. And at one point in the film, Bill Cosby teaches him how to fart. Right? And you're like, yeah, that was directed by the same oh guy as God. The Godfather, right? But I yeah, think I'm having like flashbacks to watching this as a very very young <laughs> child and being traumatized by it. <laughs> and the thing oh is, Lord. Coppola just said, look, Jack was going to be made anyway. I just wanted to make as good a movie as I reasonably could. I just wanted to build this summer house with the proceeds from Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whereas like the indie, indie circuit must be such a different mentality. I remember when I was watching uh, Rings and the director, the director firstly, I asked him what he thought of the series. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, I'd seen some of them. <laughs> like some. There's only fucking two American ones, right? But he's like, yeah, I've seen some of them. And uh, as we were getting nearer to the premiere, I saw more future and I thought, I don't think this looks like a very good film at all. So I was asking Sony, I was going, like, Sony, can I, can I just put the interview up on a separate day from the review, you know, to, to build up the hype, right? And Sony are like, no. Must be the same day. It's got to embargo till the release date. And do you need to have a review up on the release date? So, you know, this big review, however long it is, goes up. At the same time as a, as a one and a half star review. So, I don't think they liked me. I think it was like, how do you fuck up the, a new version of a Ring of the Viral Age? You have one immediate built-in premise, which is... A YouTube video of Samara, right? And they're like, no, nah, no, nah, what we're going to do is we're going to do another origin story that's set in a rural area. <laughs> you go, nice. <laughs> anyway. That was something I enjoyed about the soft trailer was that the uh, the planey tape was a USB stick. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was a nice update for the times. Uh, anyway, because of Clapboard Jungle, the point being that yeah, you're not going to have the same, quite the same trade-off of art of art versus commerce. I mean, there must be people who change their dream pro- project in order to get distributed. And I imagine that, that sort of compromise is probably fairly common. I also think, depending on how much money you've got behind you in the first place or how much security you have, like you have more flexibility around, you know, what decisions you make around how creatively involved you'll remain with your project, you know, because there was somebody, I've forgotten who in the documentary was talking about how, you know, if somebody says, okay, we're going to buy this project off of you, or we're going to continue this, but we're going to ask somebody else to be involved as the director, then you know that the project is viable. And so somebody else is likely to give you the money um, and they're willing to keep you on. But, you know, if you're like, at breaking point financially, by the time somebody like gives you that offer, that's going to change your decision. I would assume. Yeah, I mean, I think another like where we're maybe making a bit of a false dichotomy here, though, is uh, you've got a, quite a lot of filmmakers who make a name for themselves on the indie circuit, and then studios approach them just because of how much acclaim they can get. You know, if you can make your own films almost like an adjective, like, you know, when you hear, like, like we know what a Tarantino film is, for instance. And I guess I'm thinking of, like, you know, the uh, new Suicide Squad trailer, where, you, where you're going, okay, well, this is James Gunn. James Gunn didn't start making this sort of film. 
But at the same time, James Gunn's only been offered these films off the back of being good at making James Gunn films. So that sort of journey seems relatively rare, but at the same time, it must be very rewarding. You know, you, you, you still keep the distinctly you part of what you do because that's what we're investing in. You know, but at the same time, uh, you're also working with, with one of the bigger franchises in the world. But is it not also, I mean, James Gunn, to be fair, was working for a bigger franchise. It <laughs> sort of smacks with similarity of, of you know, disgraced uh, Marvel directors being offered lesser DCU projects. Now, I know that James Gunn this I think, made up with uh, Disney and Marvel over, like, whatever controversy there was around his uh, offensive tweets that were dug up. Um, and I think he is signed back on to Guardians 3. But... You know, I I don't think that the new Suicide Squad looks great, and although I really love the Guardians films, I'm not sure that James Gunn can um, sculpt a beautiful statue from the material. I don't know. I think with uh, I think with this, it will have a much more sort of punky vibe to it. Something that's maybe a bit more like his older films is kind of because he like he started off doing trauma films. Oh, I'd be so happy you see Lloyd Kaufman on the uh, documentary there. I remember. Yeah, Snappy Dresser, Uncle Lloyd. I remember tweeting him a while ago, everyone, because there's a story about him appearing in Rocky. So I go, Lloyd, is it true that you appeared in Rocky? He tweets me back and goes, yeah, I played the part of Drunk Bum. Sylvester Stallone carries me into the bar at one point, which if you watch the film, it takes up quite a, a good 10 seconds or so. He goes, Sylvester Stallone carries me into the bar. He was my supporting actor. I was like, ah, oh, love him. A dad joke. Uh, but yeah, like that's how James Gunn started, you know, doing that, doing that sort of trauma stuff. And then it won uh, Sliver, with, uh, good old um, Michael Rooker appearing in it again. So yeah, I, I reckon you'll probably do quite a good. Oh gosh, this. yeah, Sliver was one of those films that we watched during, you know, some of these Saw marathons. It's Nathan Fillion in it with um, oh, who else is in it? He is in it, I believe. Yeah, who's the female um actor who's in it as well? Uh, it's, it's Elizabeth Banks. Is, but Elizabeth, Elizabeth Banks. Banks. I was going to say Elizabeth Banks, then I thought mm, maybe she would be too young for that, but no. I barely yeah. remember Slipper. It was fucking minging. It's my Terrible. main memory oh, of it. Oh man, it was bad because I watched I watched it long before I had ever seen like Firefly or any anything that um, would have made Nathan Fillion remotely attractive um, <laughs> to me as a teenage girl. Um, so. Slither was not um, the the gateway to uh, future fandom. I, I personally liked it as a film. To be fair, I must have seen Slither when I was like 14, so it's possible that my tastes were not as uh, developed as they obviously are now when I'm watching Digimon in 2021, but um, <laughs> I would say that uh, it was not my favourite. I've, I've only seen it once. Um, it, I remember it being absolutely minging. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, like it, I've always sort of thought the film can get a visceral reaction out of you and it's probably doing something quite well. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I even bring that to feelings of disgust. It's important mm. to be emotionally invested in the film you're watching, even if that emotion is disgust. Probably wouldn't be in my top three James Gunn films. That would be Guardians 1, Guardians 2, Scooby-Doo, maybe. Oh shit, yes, I forgot about <laughs> Scooby-Doo. How can you forget about Scooby-Doo? <laughs> um, yeah. stuff. Uh, 
So we've got anything else you want to you want to say about uh, Clapboard Jungle? We've left that one a little bit behind. I just thought overall this is such a, a heartfelt love letter to cinema. Mm, I think yeah, I think it was very clear from the, from the get go that Justin McConnell lives and breathes film. You know the the videos and of the short films he was making as a teenager were really really mm. endearing. Sort of reminded me of. When um, I was living in France, I had uh, only two DVDs for entertainment, uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring and uh, Hot Fuzz. So I watched not only those films like constantly, but also all of the special features. And one of the special features on the Hot Fuzz DVD was a, a film that Edgar Wright had made when he was in high school which was essentially like a sort of mock-up for hot fuzz like the, the plot is basically the same like there's this um sort of hooded figure even some of the shots are the same actually like this sort of um like reaper like figure who will just appear in the background after like a death has you know after a kill has happened but the, the point is that you know he also is somebody who obviously like from childhood has kind of had this love and had this passion and then kind of like translated that into like a career in the industry which is obviously very inspirational you know whether your passion is filmmaking or whether it's something else like but having carried that for so long and having stuck with it despite how obviously challenging it is 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 incredible i reckon something would scare the absolute shit out of me is uh those marketing conferences that we have you know where hey sit down in a booth where you've got posters up or concept art detailing the movie and then people come in and speak to you and you have to do some sort of a super pitch to make it stand out i just sort of thought like okay the networking part you've had that'd be an inevitable part of the job right but to hit the road every year to go to a city in another part of the world and sit there with a poster up selling your vision, knowing it was a good likelihood that nothing will come from this. Mm. You know, I, th- I think it must take so much grit to carry on with that. You know, there's um, a bit where the Sky Sharks team and, you know, the Sky Sharks team are mentioning they've been going there for like 21 years or something, you know. I mean, not just Sky Sharks, but they've been going continuously. They're trying to get money for Sky Sharks in, like, 2015. And I remember seeing that film in 2020. You know, it took five years for that to that 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 for that, that to get released. And, in fact, it wasn't even properly released over here, I don't believe. I think it was, like, it got a screening. It got a screening at Fright Fest. I don't believe I can purchase Sky Sharks right now. In fact, I'm actually going to, I'm not going to buy it because I didn't like it, but I want to see it curiosity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, can, you currently can't buy Sky Sharks right now. So, you know, and we see even 2015, in 2015, people are trying to get money from investors to make this. You know, I may not have believed in that film, but people who made it really, really did, you know? Yeah. They must have lived and breathed Sky Sharks. But I think, I think something that the film makes quite clear is that, you know, it sort of it reminds me of that like Stephen King quote that I think it's talent is cheaper than table salt. What separates a talented individual from the successful one is a lot of hard work. But it's not just hard work at your talent. It's it's you're basically running a business. 
Mm. You have a product to sell and you have to market that product. You have to distribute that product and how successful you're going to be at that is going to very much depend on meeting the right people and convincing them that it's worth their investment, you know, the, the investment of their resources, the investment of their time. And the people who are best at that are not necessarily, I mean, I'm sure there will be crossover, but the people who are best at convincing other people that they are worth that investment are not necessarily going to be the ones who are making the greatest films. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we say in the documentary, you know, you can't just be a director any any longer, or uh, you know, you've got to be, you, you've got to have a head for marketing. You know, you've got to have uh, a head for legal jargon as well. You know, and uh, and uh, you've got to be out there fronting your or movie. have people around you that do. You know, or yeah. have people around you that do. You need to be able to collaborate. You need to like find the people who, if you if you have deficits in your in your abilities that that they can make up for them yeah because that's another thing that comes through in this documentary that in the film industry there's not really such thing as individual success you know it, it all of these are reliant upon a big team of people a big team of people that no matter what their part in the vision they still believe in the vision enough to be able to to contribute to it you know um, we're willing to take time out to do something, and uh, and often they're taking a risk because they don't know that this thing's necessarily going to make any money. Yeah, and the bigger the film, the more people that you need to kind of believe in that vision and and to commit to it. Because you know, I was saying earlier that the that a lot of what the film explores could be applied to other industries or other other art forms, but film is is probably the most complicated business at you know at a high level or a a feature film level because of how many different things are going on at once and how many different people particularly you know like actors and artists and 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 people who are potentially like maybe stereotyped to not necessarily have the um easiest temperaments or or you know to have I think it sounded like it was sort of euphemistically alluded to in the film or sort of saying people have their own needs and wants and mm. egos. You know, you are not, probably because of the sort of precariousness of the business and because of the amount of, of like personal, you know, investment that you have to put into it to get to the level where you can be part of projects like this. You know, the stakes are really high for people. Essentially, it'll make it difficult to to work um, under really high pressure scenarios. So if you're doing that at a level where there's also this threat of maybe the money's not going to be there or, or maybe things are going to all fall apart, then then I can imagine it's a really, really difficult situation to be in. Oh, yeah, I me mean, especially as you've got to spend money to make money. You know, we've, we've got things like paying for hotel rooms on in and flights just to give the opportunity to pitch your film to the right people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going into this industry completely broke, it must be really, really scary. Or, you know, you just yeah. have the door, you just feel like the door has been slammed in your, in your fucking face. So mm -hmm. yeah. Um, huge, huge uh, respect on my part to Justin and everyone else who makes the films that we cover. Even the films I don't like, 
you know, it's uh, it's not it's certainly not for me to take away anything from the achievements of the people who've made them. And, uh, you know, I mean, I dare say that uh, Zack Snyder is not going to be sitting there losing sleep going, ah, oh, David didn't like Man of Steel. <laughs> but Zack Snyder, Zack Snyder had to make Man of Steel in order to make the Justice League mm-hmm. Snyder Cut. So, you know, he got there eventually. Forget the success he'd had before then. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I asked you. Do you reckon... Uh... Jacken Snyder cut it knocks Wonder Woman off the best of DC. I don't think it does. I think Wonder Woman still. Oh the best. no, no way, no. Yeah, I think Wonder Woman is still the best. Like I would put, having recently ranked all of the MCU films, I would, and and most of them. I mean, remember, I suppose that I would be ranking them based on like I I enjoy a superhero movie. I'm quite happy to watch a superhero movie. I don't expect it really to do to do anything other than kind of fulfill the basic beats of that genre and and it's going to be you know a fun visually spectacular experience and the ones that I prefer like are also quite funny um and potentially subversive like Thor Ragnarok or maybe the first Guardians film would be the ones I would probably place higher oh and the original Iron Man but having ranked them all I would say most of them for me fell in like the four star area and I would say that Wonder Woman was probably about as good as some of my like middling Marvel films whereas the Snyder Cut like I think it was much better than all of the other films than Wonder Woman but but I don't I don't know that I don't know that it I think it's just a different beast like Wonder Woman I think can just be enjoyed as like a sort of standalone film and it doesn't really need like the build-up of some of the others whereas I would say with some of the later Marvel films, you gain more from them with because you have a context of the wider universe and you you know the characters from different films and and you kind of come with that knowledge of their character as it's been built up over like potentially ten years prior to that film that you're watching. Speaking of building things up over a long period, Scream Quadrilogy next time. Emma, if curiosity, have you got any strong views on the Scream films? Uh, I like them more than I was expecting to like them. I think Courtney Cox and David Arquette, they're the only characters that are in all of them. No, no, Neve Campbell's in all of them. Oh, forget Neve Campbell. I mean, that tells you everything that I need to say about Neve Campbell in the screen yeah. films. Yeah, your, your fandom doesn't go to great lengths. No, it doesn't It doesn't go to great lengths. I mean, I would say maybe the first and the fourth ones are my favourite screen films. I think that's probably the correct answer. Well, well I've got your approval. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so next time, me, Ross, Jim, and I believe Steph will be talking Screams 1 to 4. Folks, thank you very much for joining Horror Cult Films for our first interview with the legendary Justin McConnell. Thank you again so much if you're listening to this, Justin. It was great having you on this show here. Oh, by the way, we didn't give a star rating. For me, Clapper Jungle is a definite five stars. What do you reckon, Emma? I give it five. Yeah. It's going to be available from Arrow Video on uh, the 12th of April. And if you add up the commentary tracks, this comes with a whopping 24 hours worth of extras. So that means that you can spend an entire day with Justin. 
And having just spent an hour with him, oh, I would gladly spend an entire day in his company. Thank you all very much, folks, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye! Check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk White Bat Audio.